Are you ready to feel more energized, focused, and supported? Go to LayeredSuperfood.com and add nourishing, plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. Use our promo code DRD at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Ready for the interview and if you get a cue live on the laptop, watch what I'm gonna do. Welcome to the show, let them know we got a point of view. Hey, yo, let's have a combo. Say what you feel, be real, that's the motto. Real talk, pronto, doctor, DPHD, hit an intro. Hold up, wait, gotta be social, network, global, home for the locals. Gotta be social, network, global, home for the locals. All right. I'm having another awesome psychedelic conversation here. Ifatayo, thank you so much for being on with me. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Well, a lot of people know you, apparently. And <laughs> you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and a couple of my friends in the business have been like, you have to talk to her. Like, uh, she's an awesome person to talk to about this. So I said, okay. Let's do it. So let's get into your involvement and kind of the genesis of your involvement in the psychedelic movement. Yeah. So let me say I'm honored that you know you heard about me and you reached out. So thank you again for having me. Um, how I got involved into my work around psychedelics, it's kind of a roundabout way. You know, I've never had a strong interest in psychedelics. Um, definitely didn't foresee it to be something on my career path. But about 10 years ago, um, I got involved with the organization called the Drug Policy Alliance, New York City. I was an intern um, during my junior year of college. And I started writing, speaking about my experience of growing up with my father in prison. So my dad went to prison when I was a kid. He served about eight years and was released um, in 2004 and deported right after to his home country, Jamaica. He's been there since. And um, I started speaking about this experience, the impacts of parental incarceration on children, particularly Black children who are, you know, our families, our communities, communities are disproportionately um, impacted by the war on drugs. And it was there that I learned that one in nine Black children will have a parent in prison. So I came into this work uh, speaking from my own lived experience of, you know, my dad selling drugs and um, being deported and also having um, four brothers that I grew up with and seeing them navigate the world as black men and um, facing discrimination and criminalization. Um, and then uh, in 2013, later that year, the Drug Policy Alliance invited me to speak at their conference. They have a big conference every other year. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into when I agreed to speak, but um, I spoke in front of over a thousand people and it was a very cathartic moment for me um, sharing my story. And then afterwards, I went to a panel on end-of-life treatment and psychedelics. And that panel um, 
really piqued my interest because I never heard of psychedelics being used in a therapeutic set, uh, therapeutic setting. And, um, you know, my knowledge of psychedelics was, you know, the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. And um, my friends in college at the time were doing Molly. So that was pretty much what I knew about psychedelics, the counterculture and, you know, present day. And so that convinced me, that panel convinced me to try mushrooms for the first time. And this was a time in my life where I was uh, very depressed. I just got diagnosed with major depressive disorder and I didn't really know what to do. Um, you know, I, I was prescribed antidepressants like uh, Celexa, Wellbutrin, and I wasn't um, really comfortable taking them because of the side effects. And my mom is a um, herbalist. And so I always turned to herbs growing up. Um, and so I was like, I, there has to be something else that I can do to help. Um, and so I took three and a half grams of mushrooms, um, one Saturday morning, had my friend who was a psychology major. <laughs> now she's now a therapist, but she was my sitter, um, mm -hmm. during that. And it was a very, um, pivotal experience for me because it reminded me of, joy in life experiencing joy because I was so depressed I didn't I just felt like my emotions felt like paint drying on the wall I didn't feel that much I felt really numb and taking mushrooms I was laughing I was crying I was you know amazed with the simplest things you know looking at flowers looking at trees I was just like so in love with that. And so it reminded me of the beauty in life and, you know, the beauty in our experiences. And, and I believe it, it gave me, you know, that push, that reset that I needed to, you know, finish my last year of college strong because I, I was really struggling and I don't know if I would have been able to graduate on time had it not been for um, that experience I had with mushrooms. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that uh, experiencing like laughing and crying. I was smiling because I'm like, man, I had that same experience my first time. I was like, wow, like I wasn't in a state where I was depressed or anything like that, but it just reminded me of the beauty of life. And sometimes that beauty gets glossed over because of the daily grind of existence. Yeah. Right. You lose yes, it yes. because you're just on this wheel all the time. Mm -hmm. And that wheel yes. is exhausting, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're on autopilot. You're you're not yeah. thinking about, you know, the positive. You're just trying to survive. You know, when you're in survivor mode, taking care of yourself, being mindful, all that stuff goes out the window because you're like, I just got to get through it. I got to make yeah. it. I got to survive. Yeah, so, most definitely. Yeah. So how did your kind of advocacy for this grow out of that experience? Yeah, so after that experience, um, I did mushrooms one more time before I graduated. Uh, and then afterwards, you know, I was like a, you know, a lot of recent graduates. I mm. was struggling to find work. Um, and I had a colleague of mine reached out to me about a position at MAPS, the Multidisciplinary mm -hmm. Association for Psychedelic Studies. It's a mouthful, but they do a lot of the um, 
clinical research around NDMA, assisted psychotherapy for people with PTSD. And so I got a job with them as the assistant to Rick Doblin. And <laughs> being in that world, I learned so much about, you know, psychedelic research, psychedelic science. Um, but in some ways, it wasn't a good fit for me. I was the only Black person at the time. Um, when it came to the research itself, and, you know, especially in regards to the PTSD research, I noticed that there was a lack of awareness around um, race and racism in the U.S. Uh, Black people weren't really be being included in the research. And I recall one time during a staff retreat, um, they were going over the demographics of one particular study they did, and it was like 90% white, mm -hmm. um, the participants. And someone was like, oh, well, why was that? You know, And the response was, oh, it just happened that way, right? And so that's an example of how unchecked biases can, um, you know, play a role in um, research and how that research can, you know, inform policy and why it's so important that we as Black folks, we stake a claim in this field as well, because um, our narratives and our experiences matter just, just as much as anyone else's. Most definitely. I, I know when I was looking, like I've interviewed a ton of people in the psychedelic space and uh, I was noticing, I was like, man, I don't see a lot of black people in this space. <laughs> like I'm combing through it. I'm like, gosh, it's a lot of white people and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of men. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and I said, man, and so I said, man, I have to try to find like like it was just harder for me to find you or to find mm -hmm. uh, other people in the space. Um, and it's interesting what you said about that. Now, when this was happening, um, they said it's just how it happened. But was there any other like commentary and like, hey, we should do better with this or we should be more focused on that? Mm, yeah, I there there were a few of my colleagues at MAPS at the time who were really interested in doing more around racial justice yeah. and exploring and researching racial trauma. Um, I, I recall some of the folks took it upon themselves to go to a racial justice training. Mm -hmm. um, and they came back reporting that uh, they were asked to rate their organization on the scale of one to 10, one being white supremacist and 10 being oh, anti-racist. Wow. And they gave them a two, they gave maps a two. <laughs> Whoa. So, so yeah, and and these were people who took it upon themselves to pay for this racial justice out of their own yeah. pocket. Not it wasn't paid for by the organization yeah. because to them it wasn't a priority. So, you know, that was what over seven years ago, and yeah. um, I know maps has changed a lot yeah. in some ways. But, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done, and that was part of my motivation for uh, creating the the collective because i knew that okay they're gonna catch up but we can't wait until yeah. they catch up we need our space without um white folks because that that doesn't exist in this space so mm -hmm. far and 
we need to, we as folks of color, we need to be connected to each other more because um, there's so much information sharing, skill sharing um, that needs to happen. So we're not working in silos. And so that was kind of the um, motivation. And then we just had an informal Zoom call back in 2017 um, discussing our experiences. And then that evolved into us, you know, doing something about it, doing projects together. And now, you know, we're a nonprofit and we have more programming and we fundraised a good amount of money. So uh, we're hoping to just keep on expanding and growing. So in this effort, what has been the most rewarding part of it? And what has been the most mm -hmm. challenging part of it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say one experience that's been really rewarding um, going back to 2019, pre-pandemic days, uh, <laughs> we had a conference, um, I believe, yes, August or September 2019, I'm forgetting. We had our first conference, the Empyrean Conference um, at the Eaton Hotel in D.C. And, you know, this was really done on a shoestring budget. We didn't even have a budget at that time, but mm -hmm. we fundraised from other organizations in the field who supported us. Um, and it was a two-day conference and it was an amazing event. Um, I was really just surprised at how much support we got. People coming from other states across the country, different regions, um, I was expecting only people from D.C. area, DMV, you know, but there are folks who came from Detroit. We had uh, Kalindi E., who was a big um, advocate for high-dose mushrooms. He passed in 2020. So um, it was really warming and affirming to see these people who had such a hunger for the space that we were trying to create, the vision that we we're trying to create, and um same with our retreat. We had a retreat right after the conference in Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, six women of color. And it was also just a rewarding experience. And it made me realize that sometimes all you need is that time and space to process, to heal, to fall apart, to connect with other people, just to know that you're not alone. And seeing these people come from near and far to um, share that vision with me was was really rewarding. Um, in terms of the challenging parts of my work, I will say that uh, sometimes speaking to mixed audiences, and when I say mixed, I mean white folks and people of color, yeah. um, can be challenging because that, what's that term? White fragility. Mm. <laughs> it's mm. a very real thing. Um, I recall, let's see, back again, 2019, I spoke at an event called the Women Women's Visionary Congress. It's been going on for over a decade, and uh, that event was created in response to the lack of women um, being centered and recognized in the psychedelic field. And so my talk was called Why People of Color Healing Spaces Are Important, and I could just feel the energy in the room shift <laughs> after I did my talk because I was really speaking to how when you get in a room with a bunch of people, whiteness tends to dominate, right? Mm. When Black people, when we talk to, when we start to talk about our experiences and our history in this country, um, 
in mixed spaces, oftentimes what you experience is deflection, yes. derailment. And yeah, I that's, you know, that's why I wrote my talk. And afterwards, there was a board member from MAPS, <laughs> John Gilmore, who got up during Q&A time and was like, oh, well, what if I started a whites only conference? How would you feel about that? <laughs> And I was like, well, you know, MAPS conference, as it is, is already pretty white. Like, doesn't so that already exist? I mean, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't really be doing anything different from what you're already doing. So don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> but that's just an example of sometimes um, sharing my message and speaking about our um, needs in an affirmative way can offend people. And, you know, I'm I'm used to it. I know exactly what they're going to say. I already have my talking points and rebuttals queued up. So it doesn't phase me too much. So, so interesting. Man, I literally just had this conversation today with someone. Mm -hmm. This morning, mm -hmm. one of my clients, we were discussing this very topic, white fragility. and And this is actually a white person who was developing really excellent, uh, like DEI programming. And mm -hmm. he was talking about how like white, he's a white person himself, that white people get uncomfortable and weird and deflection when you bring up the plight of black Americans throughout our history. And mm -hmm. he said, and some, it's often, you know, a lot of people who are on whatever side of the aisle they profess to be on, it hits all people. It doesn't matter. Like there's this weird kickback or defensiveness, it, uh -huh. this defensive position. And it's often like very, I wouldn't say it's surprising, but some, in some ways it's like, come on, it's just explaining a reality. It's uh -huh. like, uh -huh. you hurt uh -huh. your leg. I told you you hurt your leg. Like, I mean, <laughs> like I get this as like really bad stuff, but it's like, it, it's not like, it's, it's just ingesting a reality of a situation over mm -hmm. you know, many, mm -hmm. many uh, decades, hundreds of years. Like, but it's it's interesting how like the current version of person still takes offense to that. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they want us to be in denial of our reality, like they are. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. So, <laughs> yep, yep, yeah. Wow, interesting. So. With with what you're working on, what's the kind of the larger vision that you're hoping to accomplish with mm -hmm. the nonprofit and and what are the maybe the hurdles you have to overcome to get this to where you want it to be? Yeah, yeah. So part of my vision is, um, you know, my organization, you know, maintaining our approach is being a um psychedelics focus group with the social justice approach um, and organizing, uh, connecting with people of color who are interested in, you know, psychedelics and ending the war on drugs. Um, and I think that looks like being a leader in the field, shaping the future of psychedelics. Um, and I, that connects to your second question about hurdles, barriers. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason why I think it's so necessary for us to build our vision of, you know, a social justice framework to, in the psychedelic space, um, uplifting our vo voices and recognition, um, 
part of the reason why that's difficult is because there's been a lack of investment in uh, organizations led by people of color in mm. the psychedelic field. And because of that, it's hard for us to build an infrastructure that really supports the vision we're trying to build collectively that tackles problems um, because there are going to continue to be problems as we try to legalize, decriminalize, or just integrate these substances into our um, current system, right? So for example, in terms of psychedelic therapy, um, there's a shortage of therapists to go around, right? Yeah. Um, every therapist isn't trained on psychedelics. So that's an issue in and of itself. And how do we tackle that, right? And then the other issue is that the medical slash clinical side of things tends to get the most attention, tends to get the most funding. Mm -hmm. But if that's our only, um, I guess, gateway into legalizing or decriminalizing these substances, then we leave a bunch of people out, right? Because our healthcare system in this country is already very expensive. Um, it doesn't really, you know, <laughs> support people in the way that we need. And by integrating psychedelics into the system, we have to understand that psychedelics are going to take on all of the system shortcomings as well. So we have to think about not only, okay, the medical clinical model, we have to think about, okay, well, what about people who are using these substances recreationally yeah. just for fun? Um, teenagers, that kind of thing. Uh, so <clears throat> I think part of the issue is us, a lot of community groups like mine are working in silos, underfunded, undersupported, and we need more support because the folks on the for-profit side, the industry side, they have the money, they have the investors, um, and they're already doing what they want to do, even though they may not have that connection to the community they're able to say like, hey, let's throw a bunch of money at this and create this new product that we want to sell. Um, and so I anticipate that being a barrier as well. Um, and I think that we need to kind of mitigate the risks associated with psychedelic substances as we increase access to them. Um, because these for-profit for companies are not going to do that. Right. Because yeah. they want to sell as a magic bullet. Um, and what I something I've been reflecting on lately is that you cannot make a business plan out of people's well-being. Mm. <laughs> and that seemed like an overgeneralization. But when it comes to psychedelics, it if you want to really help people heal, then you're going to want them to not have that dependency on okay, well, I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling, I have trauma. Let me go heal with psychedelics. Um, and then go back out to the real world where they're harmed again, right? So the real issue is, yes, psychedelics can help with people's pain, trauma, healing, but we also need to work on making our world um, better so people don't get hurt and traumatized to begin with unnecessarily right pain is inevitable 
is an inevitable part of life. Yes. But <laughs> there are some things that we can do to reduce that altogether. And that looks that means having a social safety net in this country, having paid leave policies, having PTO, um, raising wages, making affordable housing a reality. Um so yeah, I think that sometimes the plot gets lost with a lot of people saying like, oh, psychedelics are great. They can help you heal. They're going to make the world a better place, but we can't make the world a better place without making the world a better place. <laughs> and the drugs aren't going to do that for us. I have to tell you, this is a, a, a very interesting take on this. And I've I talked <laughs> to so many people in this field. I'm not sure I've heard this particular line of thought before. Which mm -hmm. let me just reframe this because I think it's important to hear again, um, mm -hmm. and and I want to ingest how I'm hearing it and make sure I'm hearing this correct. Essentially, that um, there is a line of thinking that psychedelics is kind of this panacea, change your life, mm -hmm. you're gonna feel amazing, and you're it's all good. But what you're saying also is while there are many great things to it, you're still going out into a world that is not is not actually treating people better the venture x card from capital one gives you premium travel benefits perfect for seeing taylor swift the eras tour presented by capital one. Ooh, i do love her earn five times miles on flights and 10 times miles on hotels through capital one travel enjoy your stay in suite 13. whoa 13 that's taylor's lucky number the Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. The way they should be treated. And that is a mm -hmm. symptom that needs to be cured in addition. Yeah. Because you're still going back into uh, a playing field that's not exactly great for most humans mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. Which, that's just a different take to me for that. <laughs> that's a large take because that, that's not just psychedelics. This is tackling humanity. It's mm -hmm. a big mm -hmm. thing to tackle, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it is, it is. But, you know, I think I'm tired of people putting a Band-Aid over it. And I feel like people are using psychedelics as another Band-Aid, mm. right? As a, as a new product to sell. And like I was saying, you can't make a business model out of people's well-being because if the goal is for people to be well then they're going to stop coming back to you for that product, right? Yeah. But if the goal is to create the, a dependency within people to rely on you to get that good feeling, then yeah, you can make some money off of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow, yeah. This is a big, this is big work. Like this is how you're, how you're putting it out there. This is a much larger process of change than just mm -hmm. decriminalization, legalization, uh, you know, therapeutic use. This is social justice. This is how we treat each other. This is fair wages. I mean, this is, you know, understanding uh, our cultures and our differences. It's, do you ever feel like it's overwhelming to tackle all these things? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely, definitely. It is, but at the same time, I think I don't get overwhelmed at the idea of tackling those things. Well, maybe that's part of it. 
I think I get overwhelmed at the idea of tackling bureaucracy, right? Mm. (laughs) Because a lot of our approach to these problems, right, is to go through the proper means, go through legislation, change the law, blah, blah, blah. And seeing how that happens, it could take decades. And I get really overwhelmed with the fact that like bureaucracy is going to kill us in this country. Like mm. <laughs> we cannot pass these laws fast enough. Um, and I think I wonder like what's what's the hold up here? Um so I, I don't know if it's overwhelm or maybe frustration with the fact that we could solve a lot of these problems very very easily but we refuse to and when i mean we i mean Mm -hmm. i guess you know on a societal level collective level but also you know our elected officials yeah you know it humans have shown that we can prioritize something and get it done if we want to i mean there Mm -hmm. was not a lot of prioritization to go to the moon when this mm-hmm. was starting off back then, you know, 50s and 60s. But when it became a priority, it happened within a decade. Something mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. is incredibly difficult to do, by the way. Uh, like mm-hmm. to send mm-hmm. people into space and land something on another celestial body is very mm-hmm. difficult. But it was done very quickly. Um, and, and there are a lot of factors mm-hmm. related to that. And it's all about what's right. the priority. You know, do we want people to actually be well? Um, mm-hmm. And do we want them to be well long term or do we want them to be well a little bit and then to keep coming back to the trough? You know, mm-hmm. because money is usually the overwhelming factor in all these decisions. And it's mm-hmm. disappointing because you're like, well, why is money more important than the well-being of the species of humanity? Yeah. Yeah. Why is it? Why is it? It's it's really it's really saddening, you know, um, and when you talk about priorities, what came up for me was thinking about um, this latest attack on LGBTQ folks, particularly Mm -hmm. trans folks in America. Um, The Republican Party had decided it's a priority to protect our children from trans people Mm -hmm. and drag queens, but not protect our children from mass shooters. Right. Right. And it's, it's just fascinating to me to watch how quickly they're able to shift narratives to convince people of problems that don't exist and totally distract from our actual problems, right? Our kids can't go to school anymore without worrying about if they're going to get shot. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and now so many people think it's a priority to, um, to to stop people from learning history, to yeah. protect children from trans and gender nonconforming people. Yeah. It is. It's a uh, it's a strange thing. It's like, why would you go after like a drag queen hour? Like, why do you care? Like, like right. it, it literally has does not has no impact on your life in general. I'm just like, it's strange, actually. But then on the other hand, it's just much like if you go back, let's say, you know, 30, 40 years, there are other topics that people are like, listen, we're not for this. 
this is terrible. I mean, how much uproar was there against gay marriage at one point? It was like a crazy uproar. Now, you know, majority of people are, are like, yeah, no big deal. It's like we can't accept something initially. Uh, you cannot be proactive. Amer uh, humans are not proactive people in general. It's just like speech is like, I, if it's different, I don't like it. I need to adjust to the idea and often adjusting to the idea violently and yeah. being nasty with it. And then over time, when enough people have come to a consensus that this is OK, then it becomes accepted. But it's usually mm -hmm. never just accepted. Like, right. oh, yeah, right. great. Yeah. You know what? Psychedelics. Amazing. Yeah. No, there's always a something again. Cannabis. Oh, oh no, yeah. no, no cannabis. You know, yeah. It's like and yeah. it's like, why do I always question that? Why do we do this as a species? We just can't <laughs> accept something that's different than us. Initially, we have to fight it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. We're very reactive. And, you know, we all do this. We all we do all this. do this. Uh, <laughs> all of us. I'm not sitting here we saying all... I'm great about it. We all do this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I was I was having a conversation with someone today. It was like acceptance is something I struggle with, just accepting my reality and not mm -hmm. running away from it, not finding it, denying it is hard. And and you know, it's been interesting seeing how the public accepts psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Um, in some ways surprising, just Within the past 10 years, yeah. um, since I've entered this work, people weren't talking about psychedelics nearly as much. But now I, I saw, I've seen a big shift, especially since 2020. And I wonder if that's because so many people's mental health has dwindled yeah. over the pandemic and they're, you know, kind of desperate looking for other solutions. But, you know, I welcome public opinion changing and I know that. Um, well, I hope that people overall continue to change their attitudes about drug users um, and addiction and, and yeah. I have an interesting, well, I would love to talk to you about who you, well, let's, let me back up the messengers, mm -hmm. uh, people out mm -hmm. there who are maybe well known and mm -hmm. public about psychedelics. So for instance, like, a Michael Pollan, who mm -hmm. in many ways has been a big part of the seismic shift in attitudes mm -hmm. because Michael Pollan is a well-known author, agriculturalist, mm -hmm. architect, and his series was very um, meaningful to a lot of people on Netflix and his mm -hmm. book, How to Change Your Mind. Does that ever bother you that maybe someone like Michael Pollan is kind of given credit for changing a lot of people's minds. This is a white person. Or do you think it doesn't matter? I just want that word to get out there type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think, I think it's less about him being white and more about how we frame these issues. Mm. Right. And I'll be honest, I haven't read his book. I did watch some of the series with my mom a few months ago. And I remember when his book came out, um, you know, there were varying reactions from folks in the psychedelic space that I witnessed. Um, some folks felt like he was kind of swooping into mm -hmm. a field that he wasn't really connected to. Some felt like he erased a lot of women, a lot of indigenous people from his narratives. So 
I totally understand why people would feel that way. Um, in some ways, do I think it's good that, you know, he, he used his platform and his audience to shift public opinion? I think, it, you know, there is some good to it. Um, do I think that someone with an audience his size has the responsibility to be honest about the risks associated? Yes. And um, can I say that he has to some extent, but I do think that an issue that I'm seeing in the psychedelic space is people hyping up substances. Um, and it's understandable because we're excited about it, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> but I do think that folks have a responsibility to say that like psychedelics are not for everyone. Yep. Um, some people don't react well to them and there are risks. You can, yeah, there are risks just like any other substance. Most definitely. I think that's an area I'm seeing when I talk to a lot of people in the space is we're not talking enough about maybe the dark side of this. Mm -hmm. And like not nothing's just like all good all the time. Like this, this is like reality. Like it's like, you know, it's yeah. not the magic bullets like, oh, I did this. Amazing. Like I've heard too many stories, read many stories of really devastating experiences. So it's good mm -hmm. to have many sides of an issue discussed versus just like, Hey man, I did this trip. It was incredible. And it changed my outlook <laughs> on life. That's great. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but the other side can exist too. It's like saying that, you know, you did this one water sport and you never got injured and you were like, there's no chance that could happen. I'm like, no, but it does happen to other people. Right. <laughs> like, you know, you have to acknowledge it does happen to some people, you know, you're not on an island hey. here. So I think it's interesting because I read Michael Pollan's book. I listened to it on audiobook as well. And I thought it was really good. And he did talk about um, the dangers, especially of people who are um, schizophrenic uh, doing mm -hmm. these. And also men, he actually talked a lot about how he thought people should wait to do it till they got older, much older, mm -hmm. um, like in their 40s. Mm -hmm or so. Wow. Um, yeah, okay. it was interesting. I know that's definitely not the case with a lot of people, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Yeah. There's lots of arguments for that and against that and the whole thing. Uh, but I just wonder, yeah. like, because in a lot of industries, the messenger can break or mm. make the success of a thing, you know? Mm -hmm, so I just mm -hmm. wonder, like, your thoughts yeah. about And I don't see, like, where the black and brown or people of color messengers on that level mm -hmm. where where oh, is yeah. that you know yeah. i'm not aware of it are, are you like you ed educate me but i don't see someone with a huge platform in that space that is like pumping hard for this you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah well you know it's interesting what you said about a messenger being able to make or break mm -hmm. an industry or feel. and i think that's true um part of it is the respectability right yeah like michael pollan's a white guy educated mm. has written many books so people are going to respond better to him than someone say like dr carl hart who is yeah you know he's a senior columbia professor um has written a few books um drug use for grown-ups and high yep high price um i read his first book but it was very interesting to see how people reacted to his second book and how yeah. he talks about his um, heroin use. Mm -hmm. um, it's very different from how people responded to Michael Pollan. 
Um, and part of that is because certain substances have been racialized. Sure. And um, I don't want to say that Carl is a, you know, a spokesperson for the industry or anything like that. But just seeing his reaction, how a man who is tenured at an Ivy League college yeah. teaching sciences um, got this backlash to talking about his drug use openly. So I think yeah. that part of it is for black and brown folks, we have to remember that like not only are certain drugs more racialized and stigmatized than others, but us using drugs is also something that's stigmatized, right? Um and we do we do it to each other sometimes. That's like right. we're like, oh well that's the white people stuff. Well you yeah. you can't be doing that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so so I think there's more of a risk associated when um we are we do act as spokespeople. Yeah. Um you know there could be further criminalization, there could be harassment, that kind of thing. I wrote an article last year about black women educators um in the psychedelic field who've had their Instagrams deleted multiple times. And these are people with, you know, tens and thousands of followers who've been harassed, who've been threatened to be doxxed, that kind of thing. Um, and had their profiles deleted over just talking about psychedelics and racism. Yeah. Um and so I think that's also another factor at play is that when we talk about our experiences, you know, not only do we have the people who are like anti-drug to think about or like law enforcement to think about, we also have the white folks in the psychedelic space who don't like that we're talking about these issues. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's so interesting, right? I mean it's like it's kind of the same analogy. It's like, okay, yes, we're talking about a similar substance and all these things, but there's also levels to this. Yeah. And there is the uh, experience of people of color, which is another layer within the psychedelic aspect. And to deny yeah. that is kind of strange. It's just like, it's like, well, wait a minute. Like, is this not just like one level? Everything has layers to it. Everything. Mm -hmm. So to say like, well, I'm uncomfortable with this. I'm like, okay, <laughs> like it still means it's still, a, even if you're uncomfortable, it's still a, the reality. Right. It's, and and right. to me, it also kind of like, it looks at the same thing. It's like, that's kind of the whole aspect of psychedelics is like the reality shifting, the altered states of consciousness, right? It's like, okay, you're going to have to accept that even though you're in this altered state, you still are coming back to the reality that you live in on a regular basis, right? You can't mm -hmm. just live in this other place 100% of the time. And I make the mm -hmm. same association with things like the metaverse and stuff like that. It's like, you know, if you want people to live in an altered reality, okay, the, the trade-off is that their body is going to essentially fall apart. They're not mm. going to, you can't just have everything you want there's going to be mm. other realities that you, you're still going to come back to the default, which is this reality that you and I are having. Mm -hmm. You can't escape mm -hmm. that. Even though you may want to, you have to face the reality of the lived experience that you're in. And that's what you're mm -hmm. talking about. They was like, well, then you got to start changing the other societal things with it. So that when people yeah. come back from this reality in this altered state, that they come back to a better like everyday living mm -hmm. state than the trash that sometimes people get, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I was just thinking about how, you know, psychedelics, there's, 
they're mind-bending drugs, right? Yes. But when we talk about racism or just talking about how um, we need to reduce our, our um, sorry, let me start over here. So yes, yeah, psychedelics are mind-bending drugs, but I often find it funny that you know, when I talk about ima imagining a world without prisons or police, people can't wrap their heads around mm -hmm. it. Um, so I don't, that, that's just always funny to me because it's like, you can accept that DMT elves are a thing, but you can't accept that <laughs> societies have existed without police, without prisons, or even way smaller prison populations are way less funded police departments right people can accept that that is a possibility even yeah. though they're they're stretching their imagination in other ways so yeah it's like <laughs> a cognitive dissonance yeah it's very interesting <laughs> this whole topic of psychedelics i think also it just uncovers a lot of other things in our society mm -hmm. that in the end you still have to deal with the reality of living this doesn't yep. take you away from all the hardship in life. It may help you deal with it slightly better and things of that nature, but it's not, a, it's not the like, Hey, I went in, I came out done. And like, I'm good. Mm -hmm. Nothing bothers me anymore. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you use it as a tool to escape, then that's yeah. what you're going to be doing in your um, sober state. You're going right. to be escaping. But use it as a tool to accept, to move forward, to embrace, then you'll be able to do that in your sober state better. Yeah. And and that's why for me personally, I'm I'm actually a big proponent of it. I'm very happy for the uh, chronic illness aspect of it and PTSD and all that. But I, I'm in addition, I'm also a big proponent of well people, whatever you define as well, like not having a, not having those things for recreation mm -hmm. and enjoying for learning and also just to like have more laughter in your life. I don't think mm -hmm. we, we don't celebrate that. Cause I think we have this weird, I talked to someone else about this. We have this weird hang up about pleasure in life. Mm -hmm. Like almost mm -hmm. like we're, well, I don't want you to have too much pleasure. I don't want <laughs> you to enjoy yourself too much. Like, yep. <laughs> and we should be okay with that, that people want to use something to alter their consciousness responsibly for pleasure mm -hmm. for, mm -hmm. uh, Hey, I, I'm not normally very, I'm kind of uptight. I want to be a little looser and I want to just like have an afternoon where I just laugh at like everything. There's nothing wrong with that. Yes. <laughs> like, we have to be yes. okay with this mentality. Yes. I agree a hundred percent. I think there's some folks in the psychedelic space who act very holier than thou. Like, yeah. Oh, I only need ceremony or rituals. And I'm like, <laughs> like okay, you like <laughs> some of us want to have fun on the weekend you know yeah you know and what i mean think, <laughs> you know like we when we approach this from a okay this is only going to be for people who have a diagnosable condition yes we leave so many people out right and to your point about pleasure, I agree so much. We have this like aversion to pleasure yeah. and myself included. I'm, I'm way more comfortable with like 
the opposite of pleasure <laughs> and, <laughs> and accepting that. But when good things happen, I'm like mm. a little suspicious. You know? <laughs> I'm like, this really happening? Like, nah, this is fake, right? Like, yeah, yeah. But I think we need to be seeking that pleasure out more and being more proactive about it yeah. and 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 prioritizing it because that's what helps us heal as well. I think having fun, laughter can be just as healing as, you know, a therapy session, yes. right? Um, I don't like the whole dichotomy of like recreational versus medical, yeah. I think it's kind of a... It, it was a strategy that a lot of cannabis activists and ag yeah. advocates used back in the day because it, we wasn't respectable. It was like, oh, yeah. like they weren't being taken seriously. So, okay, they used pe veterans, people who had children that had epilepsy, um, that kind of thing got them taken seriously. But we don't need to really do that again yeah. because it's 2023 now. Yeah. yeah. I don't think I, I agree. I think that gateway doesn't need to be so prominent for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, I think we're in a time where just humans need to feel more pleasure and not in a hedonistic way of like no laws, no things, just like do whatever yeah. you want. Just more of like, Hey, just like, it's okay to like line up your favorite snacks. You know what I mean? Go have, you know, laugh really hard with some friends, you know, talk about you know mm -hmm. the cosmos you know and, and just kind of relax you know it's like this is not a bad thing in fact this is probably very good for you actually mm -hmm. you know exactly exactly and i think people should have a choice in how they uh get pleasure in life like yeah. you said we're not talking about hedonistic way no. but you know as i think with the proper education um, around psychedelics, people will be empowered enough to make their own decisions on, yes. you know, how they want to ingest it, how much they want to take, when, where, how, why, all that stuff. Um, and I think people should be trusted with that because when we don't do that, again, we leave a bunch of people behind just pursuing yeah. the medical model. Yeah, most definitely. Ifatayo, uh, mm -hmm. this is, uh, man, so good. I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, can Thank you please you. let everyone know how they can connect with you and your organization and learn more? Yes, yes, definitely. You can follow us um, on social and we have a website, www.pocpc.org. Um, and you can find all, all of our social media accounts and our email newsletter sign up. Um, and my, my personal website is www.ifetayo.ne. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Ifitayo. I really appreciate you and, and uh, respect all the work you're doing. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you today.